in our New Testament reading, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not conform. Don't go along with. Don't be pressed into the mold of this world. Instead, we're to be different. We're to be unique. We're to be unordinary. And for a lot of people, that kind of goes against the grain of, of what they want, especially as Christians. So many times as Christians, we want to sort of fly under the radar. We, we don't want to be out front. We want to, we want to go maybe unnoticed, stay hidden. It's so much easier and safer that way. Because standing up for what is right and speaking our minds as Christians, well, that can be costly. It can be a little scary. And what, what will people think of us? You know, some, some of us, we're afraid that people are going to call us a Jesus freak or something. We have a reputation to uphold. We don't want to offend anyone. But our purpose on this earth is not to play it safe. God has redeemed us. And God is transforming us into the image of Christ. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. The fruit of the Spirit that that we have just finished up our series on. It's about the character of Christ being formed in us and being displayed through us. And that means going against the flow. It means swimming upstream. It means that as we present ourselves to God and we allow His Spirit to renew our minds, we will be changed. We'll be changed from just regular old ordinary folks into the kind of people who can change the world. Michael Lotito was an unusual man. He was an ordinary man who did not fit the mold. He was an elegant Frenchman who had a fondness for eating unusual objects like bicycles and shopping carts and televisions. And one of his most bizarre claims to fame was that he ate an entire Cessna 150 airplane. He did. Now, the fact that somebody would eat an airplane is beyond unordinary, right? I mean, that's, that's taking unordinary uh, maybe a step too far, right? And to say that Lolito was a strange man is a bit of an understatement. But see, you might be wondering, well, why would he do such a thing? Why would anyone eat an airplane? Well, he suffered from a psychological disorder in which people compulsively eat non-food objects like dirt or paper or plastic. Maybe some of you, when you were younger, ate glue, right? So it's that sort of a thing. And his condition was first diagnosed around age nine. But it wasn't because he was eating glue or paper. It's because he started munching on parts of the family's television set. His parents said, we might want to get this looked at. And to make a long story short, he came to realize that he could turn this compulsion into a career. And he kind of became an entertainer of sorts. He ate beds and chandeliers and televisions throughout the years until finally he turned his attention to the Cessna 150 airplane. Which brings us to the question, how do you eat an airplane? How do you eat an airplane? One tiny bite at a time, yes. That's just what Latito did. He chopped the plane up into tiny bits, into parts small enough that he could easily swallow them. And he took two years to do it, but over the course of two years, he ate an entire airplane. Now, I don't know if God meant for Michael Lotito to be a peculiar sort of plane-eating person. But I do know that God has saved us 
And God is transforming us for extraordinary things. Amen? And, and, and we can learn the art of being unordinary in the same way that He learned how to eat an airplane. One bite at a time. One small step at a time. One Christ-like quality at a time. We can start by asking God to take greater control of our lives and to turn our hearts more and more towards spiritual things. And my hope for, the, for this week and in the, the next six weeks for these sermons, my hope is that they will challenge us to break out of the mold of what our culture says is normal. And, and that we would let Jesus lead us to grab a hold of and to advance the kingdom of God in extraordinary ways. So, for these six sermons, we're going to discover how we can worship and pray and live by God's words in such ways that we break the mold. And we're going to begin to discover the art of, of serving and of generosity, and of making other disciples. And we're going to begin today by briefly looking at how we can worship in ways that break the mold. I read a story about an English farmer who one day decided to visit one of the great art galleries in London. And as he was in this art gallery in London, he found himself drawn to a painting of Christ being crucified. And as he sat there on that bench in the middle of that room and just looked into the eyes of Jesus on that cross... He began to be moved by what he saw. He began to be moved at, at, at his contemplation of what all Christ suffered and endured for us, of the marvelous love of God. And all of a sudden he started weeping and he just said out loud, Oh, how I love him! Oh, how I love him! And it's kind of caught the attention because it's an art gallery, right? And everybody's really quiet. And so this caught the attention of people nearby. And they came to sort of check on the old man, make sure that, that he, he was okay. And they saw him sitting there with these tears running down his weathered cheeks. And they began to look at what he was looking at. And they started looking at this painting of the crucifixion. And after a while, one other man with tears in his eyes began to hold the farmer's hand and say, And I love him too. And then another. And then another. And one by one, this crowd of people around this farmer were looking at this painting of Jesus. And they were weeping and saying, And we love him too. That is a picture of what worship should be like. That's what worship should do. When we come together to worship God, and we're looking into the face of Christ, and we're looking at the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, and we begin to praise Him how great Thou art, and when we worship God in that way, with this adoration of His infinite love and mercy and grace, it will draw other people. And other people will come, and not to draw attention to ourselves, not to look at us, not to look at the choir, but that we can point them to look to Jesus. And that they will join with us in praising Him and worshiping Him and saying, oh, how I love Him. But too often, we make worship about ourselves. We come to worship with an attitude that says, what am I going to get out of worship today? We come wanting to feel certain emotions, to enjoy the sermon, to enjoy the music. Maybe we come to feel intellectually stimulated or to feel the warmth of Christian friends around us. And then when we get into the worship service and, and, and we leave the worship service, what do we say? We say things like, didn't the choir sound good today? Didn't Gabby sing so well today on her solo? 
What did I think about the sermon? You know, was it good? Was it not good? You know, was David on? Was David off today? I enjoyed the worship service. I didn't enjoy the worship service. That's the kind of stuff that we end up talking about when we leave. Now, don't get me wrong. We certainly believe that real, genuine worship, as Jesus said, worship that's done in spirit and in truth, we believe it should be enjoyable. Amen? It should be enjoyable. And my hope and my prayer is certainly that my sermons will challenge you and will make you think. And, and, and I want God to speak through the sermon. I want Him to touch hearts and lives. And we want to offer God our best. We want to do everything we do in worship with excellence. But the purpose and goal of worship is not to make us feel or enjoy anything. Those are byproducts of worship. When we worship God with excellence, when we bring God our best, when we worship Him for His glory and praise, when we worship God in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said, because Jesus said that the kind of worship that pleases God is worship that's done in spirit and in truth. When we do those things, it will be enjoyable. We will get something out of it. We will be blessed. But we worship God not to please us, but to please Him. Amen? We should never worship to please ourselves or anyone else, but only for the glory of God. Think of it like a wedding. Okay, imagine that, uh, that you've got a son or a daughter that's going to be getting married, right? And, and at this wedding, uh, you, you hope to feel certain things, right? I mean, you're probably going to feel, you're going to feel happy and excited and glad and joyous, and you'll probably feel just a little bit sad. You know, there's a, there's a twinge of that, a twinge of nostalgia, maybe thinking about over your child growing up and just hard to believe that they're getting married now. I can't even, I can't even imagine that at this point in my life. But, uh, but, and, and you certainly hope to get something out of the wedding, don't you? I mean, you hope to get some good memories, some great photographs. You hope to, to, of course, you're going to get a new son or son-in-law or daughter-in-law. You hope maybe get grandkids down the road. So you want to get something out of it. You want to feel something in it. But if you try to make that wedding about you, and I have seen this done before, if as the mom or the dad you try to make this wedding about you, it's not going to go well. It's going to lead to tension and strife and maybe even resentment. In the same way, we are here to glorify and praise God, to adore Him for His glory and His goodness and His grace and His love. We want to bless the Lord. And of course, we know that as we bless the Lord, we too will be blessed. We will benefit from that. But our benefit is not the point. And when we make our benefit the point, we miss out on the greatest benefits of all. It's like we're settling for party favors, photos, and punch when we could have the joy of a deeper relationship with our Creator and Savior. Worship that breaks the mold isn't worship that focuses on what we get out of it. It focuses on what we put into it. What are you bringing to the Lord on Sunday mornings? One day some religious leaders came to Jesus and they asked Him, what the greatest commandment was. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. This will also be on the screen. These Pharisees and these Sadducees came to Jesus as they always did, trying to trap Him, you know, trying to, to pigeonhole Him. And Jesus gave this powerful answer to their question. In verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, 
and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. I want to use this passage of Scripture to help us to understand that worship that breaks the mold is worship that comes, first and foremost, from all our heart. We have to worship God with all our heart. Now, in our modern minds, when we hear the heart, we think of it as, you know, besides the physical blood-pumping organ, we think of it as the seat of our emotions, don't we? It was about Valentine's Day. There's, you know, hearts all over the place. And we even say things, I love you with my whole... Or I love you from the bottom of my... Right. You know, we talk about putting our hearts into something. So we, we think of heart as being the center of our emotions. But in, the, in biblical times, the bowels were the seat of the emotions. That doesn't make quite as nice Valentine's Day cards, does it? I'm glad we've, we've changed that analogy. But, but we still have residuals of that because we talk about feeling butterflies in our stomach when we're nervous and we talk about somebody who is brave. They've got guts. So we, we still have some of that in our culture. But when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about our emotions. It's talking about the center of our deepest trusts. The core of our commitments and our loves. Worship is indeed emotional. But worship that is only emotional is worship that is shallow. Especially if we're limiting it to the simple emotion of happiness. If we're only focused on our feelings in worship, then we can end up coming into worship and leaving disappointed, not even realizing that all along we were in the very presence of God. Worship that's contingent on a musical experience that just stirs the emotions may not even be worship. People, you know, you could go to a worship experience and you could have your emotions stirred and you could think, oh man, this is just like when I used to go to youth camp or boy, this is just like that time that this happened. or Oh yeah, that's one of my favorite songs. I love that song. And you walk out and you know what you want? You've not experienced worship. What you've experienced is nostalgia. Because nostalgia is a sentimental remembrance of previous times that stir happy or meaningful personal recollections. Nostalgia can cause a congregation to romanticize, idealize, and even embellish past experiences. You know, the good old days, if we're honest, they weren't all that good, were they? I mean, we have air conditioning, y'all. That's a great thing. Amen? The result is an attempt to recreate divine moments or events or even seasons based on almost, almost completely on feelings that we had in the past. When we gather for worship, we need to ask ourselves, am I just hooked on a feeling or on the spirit and truth of God? If we're all about experiencing some emotion, and if that emotion isn't elicited because we don't know the song that was sung or we didn't particularly like the song that was sung, then we can leave the worship service believing that worship didn't happen. Even worse, people who are so hung up on, on past worship styles or on their favorite songs, and if those songs aren't sung or if they're not played or sung the way they sung or played them when they were growing up, then they might even believe that worship couldn't occur. And I, I, let me tell you all, that's pure and simple idolatry. 
Because we have replaced God as the object of our worship with a particular song or style or experience as the object of our worship. I mean, throughout the Bible, we're commanded to sing a new song. I just pulled out three, three verses from several verses throughout Scripture. Psalm 98.1 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Why? Why should we sing new songs? Because He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. Isaiah tells us, Sing to the Lord a new song. His praises from the ends of the earth. And in Revelation 14.3, it says, And they sang a new song before the throne. If you don't like singing new songs, I hate to break it to you, but you're going to have to learn some new ones in heaven. You see, when we worship from our heart, our worship goes beyond our feelings to something deeper. It goes to our love for God and our commitment to God. We're able to sing new songs because guess what? His mercies are new every morning. Amen? Because our faith isn't static. It's not just rooted in something that happened yesterday. It's alive and it's vibrant and it's a relationship that we have with God today. Worship that breaks the mold is worship that comes from our heart. From our love and our trust in God and our commitment to God. But secondly, worship that breaks the mold is worship that comes from our soul. You see, true worship doesn't begin with what we do. It begins with who we are in response to who God is and what God has done. We tend to focus on the externals in worship. The music, the sanctuary, the sermon. Are we sitting or are we standing? We get that right. Are we sitting? Are we standing? Those are the kinds of things, you know, is the offering at the end of the sermon or is it before the sermon? We get hung up on these externals of worship. But spirit and truth worship begins on the inside. In the depths of our soul. Jesus quoted Isaiah when he was criticizing the empty religious rituals of his day. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. See, God is far more concerned with what is going on in our heart and soul in, in worship than He is with what's on our lips in worship. He sees beyond what we say and do. He sees beyond the smile and the suit. He sees your heart. And worship that is done in spirit and in truth is worship that begins on the inside and then is manifested in our words and in our actions. And when we invert that, when we get that backwards, then our worship really just becomes legalistic religion instead of a loving response. Worship that breaks the mold is worship that begins in the depths of our, of our soul. It's something that's true in us seven days a week that when we gather to worship, is expressed in word and deed. Third, worship that breaks the mold is worship that's done with all our mind. See, the mind allows us to approach worship with knowledge, with insight and reason. It involves our memory, our creativity, our curiosity, our imagination. Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that the transformation that the Spirit brings to us involves renewing our mind. How and what we think and believe. Now, worship can, and, and I think worship should, stir our emotions. Don't get me wrong. You know, I, I read a joke 
uh, the other day about it was the Babylon Bee. I don't know if you know Babylon Bee. It's sort of a, a satirical newspaper, uh, but it had this was on Facebook. It had this this headline, and then all these are, are made up. It had this headline, and it said, uh, uh, "Lights, uh, motion sensitive lights go out on Presbyterian worship service." Uh, yeah, because they don't move, right? It's uh, they just sit there. Uh, I shared that with uh, with Hank over at the Presbyterian Church. He laughed. Okay, so it's okay. I can say this joke. But we, we don't need to just sit there like, like, you know, bumps on a log. We need to be emotional. We, we should feel something when we worship. But worship should not just stir our emotions. It should stir our imaginations. It should provoke our curiosity. It should challenge our minds and make us think. We need to engage our minds when we pray, when we sing, when we read and hear Scripture, when we listen to the sermon, when we gather around the Lord's table, when we sing songs. If we're not engaging our minds, if we're not thinking about the things that we're singing and hearing and doing, then worship is rote and it's powerless and it's empty. This is one of the reasons that we give you the page numbers in the order of worship so you can pull that pew Bible. That's one of the reasons we want you to bring your copy of the Scripture as Ben said. We want you to stand. Don't just stand passively and listen to God's Word be read. Open up the Bible and read along. Engage your mind. Engage that sense of sight. It's one of the reasons why we put worship notes on the back of the order of worship. To get you engaged in thinking so that you're, you're listening for things in the sermon. You're writing them down. You're making notes. You're writing down a quote or another scripture reference or, or question that you have. Or maybe God is speaking to you and He is convicting you on something. He's telling you something and you want to write that down. We want you to use your minds in worship. And I pray that when you go home this afternoon after this service, that you don't just talk about the music or the sermon. I hope that you talk about what you heard. Ask your kids what they learned in worship today. Discuss the points of the sermon. Maybe how they connected with that day's Sunday school lesson. Discuss with your family ways that they can apply the message in their lives this week. Worship that breaks the mold is worship that makes us think. It makes us question. It makes us analyze. It makes us... Go home and think about it. Don't just walk out of here and close the book on it until next Sunday. And worship that breaks the mold is also worship that involves all our strength. See, when we worship with our strength, it means that we're actively worshiping. We're not just passively being entertained. Now, in our church, we, we, aren't, we aren't very liturgical. We don't you know, really have a, a, a liturgy. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe we do have a liturgy. Yeah, it's right here. It's called the order of worship, right? Yeah, this is our liturgy. Okay, and, and, and it very, it, it, it doesn't change very often. And when it does, um, you know, Ben forgets when the off-road prayer is. Because <laughs> it's not normally this early in the service. So I, I, I've done it myself. So yeah, we have a liturgy. But you know what the word liturgy means? It literally means a work of the people. Liturgy means a work of the people. You see, when we come together in worship, it's something we do. It's something we do. It's not just something the people up here on the platform do. It's not just something that the choir does for you. We're not performers up here, and you're not the audience. Who is the audience of our worship? God. It's an audience of one. 
We are active participants together in worship. We're doing this work together. And when we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, we're responding to God's workmanship by doing good works. See, loving and worshiping God with all of our strength is an external expression of the internal impression of loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind. How are you preparing yourself each week to come and do the work of worship? How much effort are you putting into worship when you get here? You know, this, this is why worship, worship isn't just something that happens once a week in this sanctuary, right? I mean, if, if, if you're only worshiping weekly, then your worship is going to be weak. If you want to have strong worship come Sunday morning, you need to be worshiping Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We all need to have private, individual times of worship and thanksgiving and adoration of our loving Savior. We need to be leading our families in family devotionals and, and times where we worship together. And maybe that means you're singing some praise and worship songs in the car or at home. Maybe it just means that you're just sharing about the good things that God is doing in your life. But that is part of our preparing ourselves to gather for worship. I conducted a wedding once where just before the wedding was about to begin the bride realized that she left her bouquet at home. She was horrified, as you can imagine. And so they were trying to scramble and figure out what do we need to do. And all of a sudden, one of the bridesmaids had an idea. And she started gathering together all the little bouquets the bridesmaids were going to carry. And they found some ribbon, and they wrapped it all together and made the bride a new bouquet. Now, the bride was apologizing. She was so upset. And I stopped her and I said, look, I don't know what your bouquet at home looks like, but I'm going to tell you something. The bouquet you're holding right now is far more beautiful. And she kind of looked at me funny. I said, because this bouquet is about more than flowers. This bouquet is about your friends. As you hold this bouquet today, let it remind you of their sacrifice for you, of their love for you. That you're not going into this marriage alone. That they've got your back and they're going to be there for you. And she just smiled and just, it just changed the expression on her face. And as I was preparing this message this week, I thought about that. And how that's just like what we do when we come together on Sunday mornings to worship God. It involves a sacrificial investment of our time and our energy and our resources, of our very selves. It involves our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. And when we come together, we are presenting ourselves together to Christ as a bouquet. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.15, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. Because we come together. And that ties right into the final way in which our worship can break the mold. When we worship God, not only out of our love for Him, but of our love for our neighbors. See, when we get to heaven, we're not going to be spending prolonged one-on-one -on -one, you know, sessions with Jesus. When we get to heaven, we're going to be part of a, of a great choir, a heavenly choir. We're going to unite our voices together to praise God. We're going to worship God with believers from all around the world and throughout history, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We're going to be worshiping God. Amen? That gets me excited. So we better get used to worshiping with other people here and now, right? We need to learn to affirm each other's differences. To even embrace each other's worship preferences. 
Now think about a hobby that you have. Maybe it's hunting or fishing. Maybe it's woodworking. Maybe it's cooking. Maybe it's stargazing. Think about a hobby you have. If you wanted to share that hobby with your child, you're going to have to make adjustments, aren't you? You're going to have to lower that tripod down on that telescope. You're going to have to maybe amend the recipe you were going to cook, do something a little bit more simple. You're going to have to, if you're hawking, you're going to have to slow down a little bit and let those little legs keep up with you. But you know what? That adjustment, that sacrifice you have to make of how you prefer to do things is, so, is worth it because you're sharing it with someone you love. Amen? The same is true of our worship. If I, if I want to share my worship with my family, if we want to share our worship with our children or our grandchildren, and if we want to see other people attracted to our worship like those people were attracted by that old farmer to that painting of Christ, then we have to make adjustments as well. Now, I'm proud of our church's approach to multi-generational worship for that very reason. And I like to call it, Matt and I, we call it multi-generational worship because when we say it's multi-generational worship, we're keeping the emphasis on the people we're worshiping with, not the music styles that we're using. And worship is about far more than just a music style, traditional, contemporary, blended. It's about the people. And it's about helping worship to be accessible for all people from all backgrounds and all generations. I think it's beautiful and powerfully blessing when we have multiple generations worshiping God together. Because we have so much to learn from each other. And we also have to make those adjustments for each other. We have to use elements and styles and tools that different generations and people might find accessible. And it may not be your favorite. But you can praise God because maybe that's helping the person next to you to worship God a little bit better today. Worship that breaks the mold has to resist the individualistic, me-obsessed culture. Rather than being a worship consumer concerned with only what I'm getting out of worship, I need to remember that I'm one of a community of worshipers. And it's not all about me. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, the writer gives us this other-centered focus of worship when he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, worship is about one another. It's about encouraging one another. Those who sit beside us and behind us and in front of us, it's about coming together to encourage each other in love and service and worship. Listen, worship that doesn't move beyond our emotions is incomplete. Worship that doesn't begin from the depth of our soul is trite. Worship that doesn't require us to think is superficial. Worship that doesn't offer our bodies as living sacrifices is selfish. And worship that doesn't love our neighbors is insincere. If we are to truly become unordinary followers of Jesus Christ, if we're going to be transformed from the world's mold, our worship has to break that mold with every aspect of our being or it may not even be worship at all. So let's keep this in mind as we gather at this table. This table is for not just church members, not just members of First Baptist Church. This table is for all who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who have followed Him in baptism. We partake of these elements in remembrance of Him. 
as an expression of love and gratitude. And as we do it, we're serving one another. We come to this table to remember. We come to this table out of gratitude from the bottom of our heart. We come to this table to look inward, to assess our relationship with Jesus Christ. Remember what He did for us. This is worship with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength. Paul tells us to prepare ourselves to evaluate our relationship with God before we approach this table. And as you are past that tray of, of cups or of bread and you're passing it to someone else, remember, those are your neighbors and you worship with them and we are serving one another. Let's pray. And I want to ask you this morning to come, maybe to profess your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe you're not with this church family. Maybe just to confess to God, you know what, God, I've made worship about me. I've made it about what I'm comfortable with. I've made it about what I like and don't like. And I've, I've, I've not thought about those sitting around me. And I certainly have not been thinking about you. Whatever God is speaking to you today, would you respond? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for all that you have done for us. And we thank you that we can gather in your presence as one body with one voice to praise you. God, I pray you would speak to hearts today. And I pray people would respond as your spirit leads and prepare us all to come around this table to worship you, to love you, and to be blessed by you. In Jesus' name we pray.